0: Bruchem aboyim to the eighth and continuing in the continuing series of lectures on B'yosheber Soloveitchik's Emergence of Ethical Man. Last week we discussed Rabbi Soloveitchik's understanding of the sin of Adam who ate from the Tree of Knowledge. In other words, the chait of Adam HaRishem who ate from the etz And Rabbi Soloveitchik, in a beautiful interpretation understanding of the Sulkim, the verses in the Chumash, um, he wished to assert, in fact, came to the understanding that, in fact, as a result of eating from the forbidden fruit, from the Priya of the Eitz then man, Adam, Adam, was charged with a new type of drive, which Rabbi called a hedonistic or geistic drive, aesthetic drive. A drive for pure pleasure and pure domination. And this also, in fact, according to Brasil of Egypt, produced what's called this negative attribute of man, which is called Hamas, the desire for conquest, for power, and for pure pleasure. Now, so in other words, the Eta Das produces a new type of a nature in man. So just as man, Adam is of biological nature, and ethics comes as a way in which man, in a certain sense, um, resists the biological impulse, so too the hedonistic, the aesthetic, the orgistic drive in man, which becomes a new type of nature of man, this also gives rise to a new level of ethical life, which Rabbi Soloveitchik calls charismatic man. And this, in fact, actually, in other words, the new nature in Otam HaRishan, after the Chait, in fact, actually produces a new type of level of ethics. And, as Rabbi Soloveitchik says at the very end of um, Part 2, on page 145, he says, through devious ways and zigzag channels, Providence began to realize a new human personality, the charismatic. Abraham, was born, chosen, and charged with a mission by God. Abraham was selected to rehabilitate man and to reinstate him to the ideal position which he was destined to occupy. Kivyachal, God needed charismatic man to appear on the human stage. In other words, charismatic man represents a new level in what we call the series of developments of ethical man. Now, what is this charismatic... Um, attribute charismatic man, which Rabbi Soloveitchik, in fact, actually um, is referring to. So, Rabbi Soloveitchik b- b- begins with the commandment that Avom Avinu should leave his parents' land and go to Eretz Canaan. This we know from Pasha's Lefecha, actually at the very beginning, end of um, Pasha's Noyach. Yeah. So Rabbi Soloveitchik raises the question, why was there a command given to Abraham to leave his native land and come to El Chisroel? So, in contrast with the opinions of Rishonim, who in fact actually um, attribute a type of what he calls in, on page 150 an objective metaphysical quality inherent in the land of Israel, Al Jizrael, Reis argues for halachic reasons, namely that Kedusha is man-made, and therefore he says, and I'm quoting him on page 150, I believe rather that the divine commandment to Abraham to leave his parents' land and go to the land of Canaan should be understood under a different aspect entirely. The charismatic personality must disassociate himself from his national connection and completely free himself from the environment he was born and reared in. The chosen person severs his affiliation with his clan and friend. He deserts everybody in order to give himself up to his new friend, God. And this we spoke about in the earlier lectures that Rabbi Saldemar here is echoing Bergson's concept of what we call um, open religion radical religion in which man breaks away from a society and um, seeks his own path. However, Rabbi Soloveitchik elaborates on this thing and, and actually comes to a concept, an idea which we see very much in Rabbi Soloveitchik's writings, the concept of loneliness. He says, the first prerequisite for prophecy is loneliness. A lonely man finds a lonely god And this very loneliness creates the charismatic bond between them. In other words, loneliness for Rabbi Soloveitchik is not really only an existential property and attribute, but really, Rabbi Soloveitchik understands loneliness to be a state of relationship with HaKadosh Baruch, with God. Lonely man finds a lonely God. So, Rabbi Soloveitchik understands that loneliness refers not to a type of existential angst in which a person feels alienated, but, in fact, actually establishes a different type of relationship with the Kaddish Boachul, which is separate from society and involves, a, therefore, a new level of ethical relationship. Now, what, in fact, actually is the nature of this relationship? So what's interesting is that Rabbi um, Soloveitchik, on page 152, once again elaborates on... Um, the concept, and says, in the straying of Abraham from his father's house, the motive of freedom revolt comes to the force. Of course, according to Berkson, the morality, radical religion, is actually, in fact, a revolt. And that's what he says, the charismatic person is anarchic, freedom-loving, and anti-authoritarian. Okay? And Horacevajic actually harnesses, actually, sources in archaeology that this, in fact, actually was true at that time ta- Point in history. The question that we have to ask is, is where is the ethics here? In other words, Aristotle Veitchik is in fact trying to explain to us that we reach a level of ethics. And ethics, of course, always denotes a submission to some type of authority, an obligation. Right? An I-thou relationship right, establishes an obligation of the I to the thou. if a person is anarchic, freedom-loving and anti-authoritarian, so therefore, that doesn't you know it doesn't smack of any type of obligation. On the contrary, it seems to me that we're back to what Rashanavaichak referred to as the ascetic and hedonistic orgiistic drive in man, which he associated with the evil, which was in fact penetrated into other as a result of the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge. So therefore, what is the ethics of charismatic man? How can freedom love of freedom, anarchy and anti-authoritarianism, how can that be a source of what you would call ethics in the traditional sense? Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik clearly is aware of this, and he addresses this on page 153. He says, at the very bottom of 153, in a paragraph that's entitled The Anarchism of Charismatic Man, he says, yet it is important to distinguish between the anarchic tendencies of the charismatic person and those of the orgiastic aesthetic type. This is, of course, obviously the caution. This is the question that begs itself. In other words, why is, this, why is charismatic man called ethical and orgiistic aesthetic man not called ethical? Both are anarchic, both are in rebellion. So, when says the following thing, while the moral law is completely alien to the latter, it is the guiding motif of the former. Now, he says the biblical anarchy, which is charismatic man, I'm now reading on page one fifty four, does not assert itself in the negation of the norm as such, but in non compliance with man made law. In other words, charism- in other words, the aesthetic man, hedonistic man, rebels against God. Um, a charismatic man rebels against man. The charismatic person revolts against a non moral legalistic society whose ends and objectives often collide with the basic tenets of a natural living morality. Okay, very, very good. So, in other words, Rasovetsky has made what's called a chilak, a distinction. In other words, orgiistic, aesthetic, hedonistic man rebels against God, charismatic man rebels against society. But still, we've distinguished the two, but where's the ethics? Where's the positive attribute of ethics? In other words, we understand that one is a Russia, one is not a Russia. But where's the positive aspect of ethics in charismatic man? So Rabbi Soloveitchik now comes to a very, very interesting novel point. I would say this is actually one of the important novel points, one of the important chidushin in the work of the emergence of ethical man. He says, the source of the law, and of course, where is the moral law? Law implies submission. Even if a person rebels against man, where is his submission? So he says, the moral law, right, is revealed to him by his God, who is at once friend, comrade, and master, and who speaks from beyond within his own personality. The source of the law is the makhseh, the prophetic vision, not the world decree. The charismatic man discovers the ethos himself. As a free personality, he goes out to meet the moral law with his fully collected being. He chances to find it in himself and to constantly adapt it. He's not overpowered by an unforeseen element. There is a free act on his part in dedicating himself to a universal natural morality. His sovereign freedom has not been restricted. Only later does he find out to surprise that with the moral law in himself, he discovers that God will rally beyond himself. And still later day he becomes acquainted with this unique being. God encroaches not upon his personal freedom, is the important point. On the contrary, God helps him to develop his moral spontaneity and creativity. And then he says, there is no imposition of divine authority upon the charismatic person, only a bilateral covenant. What Roycello is saying is, is that freedom constitutes the ethics of charismatic man. On the contrary, it is not God who limits man's freedom, but it is God who actually propels, who enjoins man in, um, in encouraging this freedom. So in other words, man does, does not submit to God. On the contrary, God, k'viyachl, submits to man. In other words, God becomes a comrade with man in helping man to discover his freedom. So what Rabbi Soloveitchik has actually um, concluded is that the freedom, is that the ethical, the ethos, the ethical level, or the ethical essence of charismatic man is his freedom, and it's a divinely encouraged freedom. That is Rabbi Soloveitchik's understanding of charismatic man. This is a very, very interesting concept, which, um, in fact, actually um, requires a great deal of thought. It's a, a novel idea. In fact, on page 158, Rabbi Soloveitchik repeats himself and says, Jewish morality is covenant morality observed by both God and man. Both form an ethical community. Instead of dei, that means imitating God, we call it an ethical solidarity and cooperation with God. So, in other words, basically, human freedom is one in which man cooperates with God. God, in fact, encourages and aids man in order to, um, in order to, um, to illustrate or to manifest the freedom, the free nature of man's creative impulse. So. In a certain sense, we could say that Bergson's Ilan Vital, the creative um, force that operates within organic matter, reaches, in fact, its pinnacle in charismatic man. The essence, or the highest ethical level of man's ethical relationship with God, is a divinely encouraged state of freedom. It's very very interesting, and I've mentioned this previously, that this is not only a theme that we find in the Rav Salavechik, but very very much we find in the writings of of Mitzchak Koyin Kuk, Zatzal. In fact, in the Shemona the part of Kavatsum, which I referred to um, several lectures ago, in fact Rav Kuk also, in several places there in the, um, in the notebook, the Pinkask, the Pinkask um, that he um, that he um, that, that, is, that was published, that he wrote, wrote during the time that it was the love of Yafo. there in several of the pieces, um, in fact, um, of cook understands that the highest pinnacle of man's ethical, ethical dash spiritual development is, in fact, man's freedom. Okay. Now, and God therefore becomes, like the Vedic says, a master and comrade. In other words, since God is also the source of all freedom and is the source of man's freedom because, by definition, God is the source of all creation. So, therefore, in a certain sense, man acts together with God. Ethics here is not an ethics of submission, but rather an ethics of what you would call um, comradeship. This is in Rabbi Soloveitchik's understanding of charismatic man. Okay, so this is a Romavino charismatic man. Rabbi Soloveitchik goes on and to chapter nine, and we're going to skip over. Um, we're going to skip over um, chapter nine. I've actually spoken about that before: historical consciousness. And so I want to actually go to chapter ten, where we come to the next charismatic man, right? Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses. The chapter is entitled "Charismatic Man as Prophet Moses," beginning on page one seventy-nine. Now. Rabbi understands that we have a charismatic man in Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu obviously shares many things in Avom Avinu. He too has to escape from a totalitarian society. However, Rabbi understands that Moshe Rabbeinu is different from Avom Avinu because there you have the merger of what you would call freedom, and what we call submission and determinism. Arisa um on page one ninety four, understands that Moshe is an agent. He calls it an angelic role, as, as opposed to Ram Avinu. of course, was never given agency, was never sent as a shliach. Moshe is sent as a shliach to the Jewish people, And Rabbi Soloveitchik says the apostolic idea is the note of a new aspect of the covenant. The covenant not only involves God in the human historical occurrence of his chosen people, but draws man into the historical divine performance. So, what happens is we have a new level of harmony, and this Rabbi Soloveitchik speaks about on the bottom of page 185. We have a synthesis, a merger of two things, of the freedom, the ultimate freedom of, of Avraham Avinu together with the historical with, with the determinism of HaKadosh Baruch and that's what he says on page 185 um, um, five lines from the bottom the last paragraph first, God appoints man as his agent his plenipotentiary in the capacity of a redeemer man must reconcile both opposing forces and emerge as a harmonious personality the split brought about by Adam must be healed the dual personality consisting of a genuine ethical existence, an adopted orgiistic one, must be raised to a level of harmony. Cosmic law and moral law become identical as originally intended. Ethical designs are woven into the cosmic texture and a natural existence is in the background against where the ethos must be seen. In other words, we have the cosmic law, which is determinism. That's the law that's decreed by God. And then we have ethical law, which is the ethos of charismatic man. Somehow, the deterministic, cosmic law and the moral law, which finds its source in man's freedom, man's ability to choose, man's free will, somehow have to be harmonized and brought to a new level of synthesis. And that, in fact, actually um, is manifested by Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu brings the ethos, the ethical freedom of Amavino, together with the deterministic cosmic law, and brings them to a new synthesis where cosmic law and moral law become identical, and therefore achieve a new level of harmony. This is Moshe Rabbeinu. So in other words, R. Leveitschik is actually in sense, contrasting, right, the freedom of man with the cosmic deterministic order of God, and somehow these things, these two forces, these two powers and dimensions reach a harmony, a synthesis in the agency of Moshe Rabbeinu. Free will and ethics becomes identical to God's cosmic plan. And this is achieved through the concept of um, apostility or of agency. This is Rabbi Soloveitchik's understanding of Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, now, The question that I want to raise is, what is really the source for these ideas? Right? So Leveitschik is clearly being driven by what one would one would see is somehow this dichotomy between things which are deterministic and natural and things which are non-deterministic, um, free will-like and ethical. So Leveitschik somehow understands that these are two factors at play into the drama of man's ethical development, and they reach somehow their synthesis and ultimate harmony in that of Moshe Rabbeinu. What, however, are the source of these ideas? The concept of synthesis here is not something that actually we see in Bergson. In Bergson, we see a contrast between different types of moralities. The synthesis of these two moralities seems to be an innovation of Rabbi Yoshebeth Soloveitchik. However... What is, in fact, actually the source of these ideas? Now, I mentioned, when I began these lectures, I mentioned that I worked on two sets of lectures. There were lectures on Genesis, which I called the Blau Lectures, and there, Abishai um, HaVassel speaks about the, um, the, the creation of the world, and he goes through the different understandings from the, medieval rationalist like the Rambam, until the Kabbalistic understanding of creation. And that's in the Blau lectures that he delivered on Genesis. And then I also after that I worked on the um, what I what I what I called the philosophy of Judaism, which are actually notes which seem to have been the notes of a course which later Mrs Lovichuk wrote or had already written, and um, they were the basis of what of the book that we're studying right now called the emergence of ethical man. I came to the conclusion that in fact the notes on Genesis um, were given prior, lectures on Genesis were given prior to the lectures on the emergence of ethical man, only because the last two chapters in the lectures of Genesis constitute the very beginning of the emergence of ethical man. So I understood that in fact actually after the notes on Genesis, I right, so the basic, having finished those lectures, they perform notes, really having finished those lectures, the notes on those lectures, and commenced into the ideas which we see appear in the emergence of ethical man. However, upon reflecting upon Rabbi Solovich's understanding of vino Moshe charismatic man, um, the apolistic um, um, Aspect of charismatic man we see in in Moshe Rabbeinu, I came to the conclusion that in fact these ideas, the synthesis of ethical, of moral, and um, let's call it moral and cosmic lore, were actually in a certain sense themes Trovi Soloveitchik actually elaborated towards the end of his lectures on Genesis when he spoke about the Kabbalistic concepts the Paltzufum of the and specifically these Kabbalistic concepts as they play into the themes of the Shabbos. So now I'm going to read for you from those lectures, and we're going to look a little bit at those ideas, and then I'm going to, I think it's going to be pretty self-evident, but I'm going to show you how, in fact, these ideas play out um, very much in the ideas which R. Soloveitchik actually elaborates in non-metaphysical, non kabbalistic language in the emergence of ethical man. Now, you have to understand that Rabbi Soloveitchik once over and over again, Rabbi Soloveitchik emphasizes that he's not dealing with metaphysics. Very, very much so, several times in the work. For example, on page 167, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, this unique appearance of the charismatic personality requires no mystical metaphors for this elucidation. It can be easily be explained by introducing ethical aspects. Now, when a statement like that is made, of course, no author makes a statement in a vacuum. If Rabbi Soloveitchik has to go to the, um, to the extreme of, of emphasizing that it does require mystical metaphors for its elucidation, it must be that, in fact, the concepts actually are rooted in the mystical, and Rabbi Soloveitchik somehow is trying to explain mystical metaphors Within a ethical naturalistic language. So what I understand from a Slavitchik statement here on the bottom of page one hundred sixty-seven, that really in fact the sources, the ideas really have their origin, have their source actually in the Kabbalah, in the mystical, in the metaphysical. And by is taking the Kabbalah and translating it into ethical concepts. Now, I'm gonna do is read from you, read to you some of the um, some statements that are made in the lectures on Genesis, and you'll see for yourself, we'll explain it in the Mitzvah Hashem, how these statements are none other than the Kabbalistic formulation of the ideas in Emergence of Ethical Man. So Rabbi Soloveitchik um, distinguishes between what he calls um, Deus Mundus and Deus Persona, which, call, which means the God of creation, the, the God of science, and between the personal God. My son of says, speaks about the sphere of Malchus. We know that there are ten spheres, and the tenth sphere is called Malchus. So Ryselovechik says Malchus implies an external object, an outside. Here the thou is no longer within God, but outside. Malchus means the will, thought, and feeling of God enshrined in concrete matter, infinitu. The concrete order of things, therefore, also expresses deity. God imprisons himself with a capital H in the external order of things. So therefore, what we call the Ilan Vital, the Ein Sov, which is inherent in nature. So when Soloveitchik says that this is actually refers to the Svila of Malchus. He goes on, and now that was in lecture nine. In lecture eleven, right, lecture eleven, when says, the synonym of Malchus is from the word Shachen to dwell. Because God's will is imprisoned in nature. So once again, God dwells within nature. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik goes on to say that we have two concepts of God. There's Deus Mundus, which is God as known through the cosmos, and Deus Persona, which Rabbi Soloveitchik understands to either be uh, known through prophecy or through a relationship. And God reveals himself in, in fact, actually, two different ways. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik actually, in fact, says that, um, that according to Jewish philosophy, and he says, um, according, to, um, um, according to Jewish philosophy, which I believe really means the Kabbalah, at the end of all time, the twofold modus revelations, the Deus persona, the personal God, and mundus, the God within the um, rational, um, scientific, physical world, will merge. The distinction of subject-objective will disappear. Personality and concreteness will merge into one great order, Malika Kadisha, which is the pal which emphasizes man's personal relationship with God, right, um, um, which is um, Dia's persona, and Shekhinah, Dia's mundus, will unite. The prime objective of the universal purpose is this merger. In short, the vision of Achas anticipates the ascent of mechanical... Automatic, scientific, cosmos, the natural laws to a free, intelligible order of being. Basically, there's a merger of the cosmic law and freedom, which is the ethical, the moral law. Right? And this is what says, when Deus Mundus, that means the God of the physical world, emerges from the Deus persona, from the personal God, this is what Kabbalah calls the free, intellectual order of being, from necessity to freedom. So Rav understands that the the purpose or the the end of history or the climax of history will take place when there's a merging of what we would call in philosophical language ontology and ethics. Now, this in fact actually is the theme of the Shabbos. So Rav in Lecture 11 speaks about the three meals of the Shabbos, the evening meal the meal at night, the first meal, is called the meal of Malchus. Chakal okay? Tapuchen, as you all know from the meal um, of the Ari. Um, the, the meal of the Shabbos morning is the meal of Atika Kadisha. And the third meal is the meal of Zeranpin. Now, the meal of Malchus at night, Rabbi HaSeloveitcher, represents the world. The world is hidden, which means the face of God is hidden. And all we have is sort of like the cold, dark, mechanical world, which does not reveal to man a warm personal relationship. That's at night. That's the meal of Malchus. The meal in the morning, Shabbos morning, right, that represents the rela- revelation of God within the entire personality of God. That's called a Tikka Kadisha. You all know from the Torah, Simon of Peidalet, that the Tfilas of Shabbos, the Tvila of Shabbos at night, is connected to Shabbos Beresh, speaks about the creation of the world. To feel in the morning is Matan tera That Matan tera is the, the ultimate revelation of God to the Jewish people, the ultimate I-Thou personal relationship with the to the Jewish people. According to many Rishonim, all of Clients will achieve the Nevorah Meshach Rabbeinu, Ponem Al Ponem. That refers to the morning meal of Atika Kadisha. So, in the morning meal, man is given a glimpse of the historical merger which, which will take place at the end of days, at the end of history, That's sort of of the The third meal, the meal of Zerantid, is the dichotomy between the personal and between the scientific god of the cosmos, the cosmical god, right? Deus mundus and Deus persona. And that's the dichotomy which accompanies man after the Shabbos until the time when the final immersion will take place. In other words, at night, there's the God who's imprisoned within the natural mechanical world, the deterministic God, God of determinism. In the morning, there's a glimpse of the final unity, Atik Kadish is the highest world. And then at the very, very end of the Shabbos, the third meal, the Mincha, is actually where man, um, basically, a quanta in a very existential expression, understands that the dichotomy will still persist until after Shabbos until the dream or the final vision is met at the very end of history. So, in other words, the theme of the Shabbos is the dichotomy between the cosmic law, the God of the cosmic law, and the God of the moral law, of the ethical law, the God of determinism and the God of freedom. That's the theme of the Shabbos. The, the vision the purpose of history, is the merger of intelligent ethics, and that takes place in the highest world, highest of Atikyoin. So, what Rabbi Soloveitchik basically has done, is taken these ideas, these ideas of the Kabbalah, and actually express them in ethical, and I would call ethical and biological terms. Instead of speaking about Malchus, and, uh, and, um, and Malka Kadisha, he speaks about the moral law, right? The, that which is God who is who represents the fourth within the mechanical, biological world, and between the ethics of man. Now, in fact, it, is, it would seem to me that one could say that if Omad vino is what's called Atika Kadisha, I'm sorry, Malka Kadisha, Zerantin, which means it's an ethics, but it's an ethics that's disassociated from the moral law. In other words, the cosmic law. The cosmic law and the moral law, during the time of Ombavinu, are still separate, are still not, not united. Moshe Rabbeinu, in fact, actually, is the one who, through his agency, right, as the Neusat Rav Soloveitchik explains later on is the person who will unite, in fact, these two concepts of determinism and free will. So in other words, Rav Soloveitchik has actually done, in the emergence of ethical man, he's actually taken the Kabbalistic concepts of Jewish history, which are drawn from the themes of the Shabbos, based upon the Zohar and based upon the Ari, and expressed them within ethical and philosophical concepts in The Emergence of Ethical Man. So when Soloveitchik says it requires the mystical metaphors, he's not saying that these are not actually mystical concepts. What he's saying is one can explain them in philosophical terms, in Bergsonian terms, without a explicit recourse to the Kabbalistic concepts. So, in a certain sense, we get here a interesting observation. I think mean, this is I'm making this observation, I'd like you to think about it, that it seems to me that the emergence of ethical man, at least in given in the background of the lectures that were delivered before this, seems to be Rabbi Soloveitchik's attempt to take Kabbalistic, the Kabbalistic concepts of the Zoya and of the Ahri, and to restate them within philosophical jargon, within the language of philosophy. So in other words, the emergent ethical man, in a certain sense, is what's called a philosophical Kabbalah, where Salvechek does not really make any make any use of Kabbalistic concepts, but rather is using Kabbalistic concepts to present a um, a biological, ethical um, picture of man as he relates ethically to other men, and of course to to God. This is what Rabbi Soloveitchik is doing in the emergence of ethical man. Now, I wanted to, um, I realize that this, perhaps by understanding this, we could perhaps really understand why Rabbi Soloveitchik, in a certain sense, seems to consciously um, say several times that certain concepts, even called chiasameisim and, um, and uh, the concept of nisim, can be understood without the use of metaphysics. Um, based upon what I'm saying, it doesn't mean that Rav did not understand this to be primarily metaphysical concepts. Rav understood that in fact, metaphysical concepts, which Rav would certainly identify with and he actually mentions explicitly the Ari, Right, that the metaphysical concepts that we um, that we encounter many times can be expressed within the language of philosophy. I think it's says somewhere that philosophy is the chitzonius of Kabbalah. In other words, Kabbalah represents the pinimius, the inner truth of Judaism, but there's an outer truth of Judaism. How is an outer to be, in a certain sense, philosophy. So our Salvejic actually could be understood in the emergence of ethical man as actually. Expressing what he's understood to be the philosophical, biological, um, expression, elucidation of ideas, which ultimately are in fact um, actually in fact are rooted in Kabbalistic concepts. So for this reason, it's interesting that the Emergence of Ethical Man, in my opinion, should really have been published together with the Lectures of Genesis. The two works actually go together. Without understanding the ideas, the Kabbalah's concepts, which or selavichah gleaned from the Zoya, from the Ari, one cannot really understand what you were saying in the yeshiva's where he's coming from. In other words, the source of the ideas which presents the Merzah of Ethical Man. So Merzah of Ethical Man and Lexus of Genesis are two sides of the same coin. One expresses it in Kabbalistic language. One expresses the same ideas in ethical and biological language. Okay, with this I'm going to close... Um, this lecture, the eighth lecture the Mirage of the Medical Man. And in Mirza we're actually going to um, speak next week about another important concept of harmony, which our speaks about, and that's the revelation at Sinai, the revelation at And then after that, we're going to actually try to take the work in an entirely new dimension perspective. Until that time, from an undisclosed place in Yushalayim, be well.